welcome to Saga Briefs, where we're looking at the stories behind the sagas. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In our companion series, Saga Briefs, we take up a topic that comes up in the sagas that we decide needs to be examined in a little bit more depth. Well, in most episodes. This time we're up to something a little different. Yeah, this is a special edition. Mm -hmm. Now, those of you who are waiting eagerly for our episode on Viglund Saga or our Saga Brief on Icelandic drinking, well, you'll just have to hang on a little bit longer. But no worries. We've got plenty of goodness waiting for you in this little brief. Indeed we do. But before we get going, I just want to make a quick recommendation to our listeners. You do? Uh, what are you recommending today? Well, it occurs to me that we've got a lot of people who have come to our podcast because they're interested in learning about the sagas or medieval Icelandic culture and some good old Viking history. That's the point of the thing, yes. Yeah, well, so you and I both got our introduction to this subject through the language first, right? Um, yeah, I think we, didn't, we started with a semester of Old Norse before we ever actually dug into the sagas. Exactly. And, and that's actually how we were introduced to Anglo-Saxon England as well, through the language first. I, I took my first Old English class on a whim as an undergrad, just because I had credits to spare. And it was through that language itself that I discovered the people, their history, their culture, and eventually my career. I think it's fair to say, learning the languages gives us a kind of access to the texts and their context that reading and translation just doesn't always offer. Right. So if any of you out there are interested in taking your investigation of the Vikings and their culture one step further, I'd like to recommend that you pick up a copy of Jesse Byock's very, very accessible series, Viking Language. Oh, yeah. Um, we actually worked our way through Viking Language one last summer, and it made me wish we would had a copy of it back in grad school. Yeah, me too. I, I don't want this to sound like an infomercial, but it's probably going to. But the book really is great. <laughs> It's uh, The first book in the series is the basic introduction to Old Norse language. Yeah, it's teaching through vocabulary rather than just focusing on grammar lessons, mm -hmm. uh, which, of course, is part of what makes it so accessible. Right, and, and one of the things that I like most about it is the fact that it's not just a language lesson. It also introduces runes, provides background info on saga literature, eddas, skaldic poetry, all the stuff that we love. Right, and there's good history in there, too. Okay, now we really do sound like an infomercial. <laughs> <laughs> I actually just received my copy of Viking Language 2, which is the Old Norse Reader. It's the companion book to Viking Language 1. Oh, good. 1. Yeah, yeah. I haven't gotten that one yet. What's in it? Well, there's lots of stuff. I think you'd really like it. It's got yeah. excerpts from the family sagas, uh, King Olaf sagas in there. Um, mm -hmm. It's also got stuff from the Prose Edda, lots of mythic mm -hmm. stories like Ragnarok, the nice. tale of Thor and Utgar the Loki. Ah, that's one of my favorites. I know. It's one of everybody's too. favorites. What am I saying? Yeah. There's so much good stuff, and if, if you work your way through Viking Language 1 and then 2, I think you'll be well on your way to tackling whole sagas in the original language. I can't really think of anything cooler than that. Nor can I, which... I don't know <laughs> what a, says about Not us. a ringing endorsement of us as human beings, but... Yeah, <laughs> excellent. All right, well, thank you for putting up with that, John. Uh, I, I just got the Viking Language 2 book in the mail, and I started thinking about how useful the whole series can be for gaining access to the sagas on their own terms, and I just thought our listeners might appreciate a heads up on that. Right, well, now they have it, and um, where can they get that if they want it? Well, if they're interested, if I can continue the infomercial mentality, yeah, you just can keep pushing it along. If if you're interested in picking up a copy of either book, Viking Language One or Two, you can visit their website, VikingNorse.com, or you can search them out on Amazon. And we also put up links on our webpage under the heading Viking Language and Old Norse Resources. It's a wordy heading. You couldn't come up with something better? Uh, obviously not. But you can feel free to edit the thing if you ever got online. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm going to continue sending semaphores and letting you do the actual techie work. Uh, all right. Uh, let's get back to our task at hand now. We're, uh, we're supposed to be talking about Ragnar Lothbrok in this episode. Well, let's do it. 
All right. I don't know if you've been watching, but the third season of the History Channel show Vikings started up recently. Oh, yes. I have been watching, but usually a day or so after the episodes air. Um, but I have been enjoying your live tweeting all the same. That's pretty good stuff. So, so you actually you read the live tweets before you watch the episodes? Yeah. I, I can't help myself. I find you so entertaining. Well, many do, but <laughs> doesn't that – doesn't that sort of leave you a little confused as to what's under discussion, or does it just spoil the show? No, I figure it all out. But anyway, Fair for enough. those of you who are, aren't familiar with the show, or maybe the, maybe you don't live in an area where it's being aired, although you have this thing called the internet, you could figure it out. Vikings is loosely based on the very... Is that too too snarky? No, no, carry on. Okay. Vikings is loosely based on the his, uh, various historical texts written about the career of uh, a man named Ragnar Lothbrok, a 9th century Viking. Now, the show takes some substantial liberties with Ragnar's history. Uh, for instance, it's much more focused on Ragnar's ambitions at home and abroad as a leader of men than the Saga Age texts are, which tend to focus on his raids and semi-fantastic exploits throughout Scandinavia. Right, but as we've talked about before, the texts themselves are a highly inconsistent set of narratives. Uh, and more often than not, they contradict one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Ragnar himself may be more myth than man. So really, the show is just another version of Ragnar's story. That's a good way of putting it. This this modern version includes a fair amount of modernized sensibility, of course. But on mm-hmm. the whole, the show's runners seem to be very aware of how their story ties into Ragnar's legend. Yeah. I, um, it, in the last season, for example, we saw Ragnar consolidating power in Scandinavia while continuing to take part in and organize raids in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, he even found time to execute one of his enemies by means of a Blood Eagle torture. Now, the Blood Eagle torture, by the way, is the subject of our first saga brief. And that episode also deals with Ragnar's story a little bit, or at least the story mm-hmm. of his son's revenge for Ragnar's death. Right, right. So so all these plot points from the show are actually drawn from Ragnar's stories, right. but some of them are out of sequence. Some of them are attributed to Ragnar's sons in the original stories, and some obviously are just being invented for the show. Mm-hmm. And all are certainly much more fleshed out than than they would be in the in the sagas themselves. Yeah. Um, I think that tradition appears to be continuing in this new season of Vikings, from what I can tell. Now, I don't know a whole lot about what's coming up this season, but it has already been acknowledged in the uh, season previews that mm-hmm. this season we're going to see Ragnar and his raiders attack Paris. Ah. And that Paris attack is actually one of the most iconic moments of Ragnar's legend. And it'll be one of the few moments that seems to be directly connected to an historical moment. So it'll be exciting to see it on film. Now, we hadn't yet started this podcast when the first season of Vikings aired in the U.S., but last year we put together an episode... Um, um, seven. Episode seven, I think, for those of you yes. who are keeping track. Uh-huh. Uh, for that episode, we read the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok and his sons, which is one of the main sources for the legendary Ragnar at the center of the Viking show. Yes, and I enjoyed that saga so much, John, that I ended up putting it in rotation for my medieval literature course. Did you? Yeah, we're going to be reading nice. it fairly soon, actually. It's it, mm-hmm. it's going to be a companion piece to Asser's Life of King Alfred the Great, which I think promises to be quite fun. Oh, that would be great. Those two yeah. together should be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a cool thing to do, I mm-hmm. hope. Hang on, I just want to back up for a second. Are we really going to not acknowledge the fact that the guy's name is Asser? <laughs> well, we're medievalists, so it's it's normal. We're just, we're just letting that go? All right, <laughs> fair enough. <clears throat> Um, but the saga of Ragnar and his sons isn't the only noteworthy source for the legendary exploits of Ragnar and his sons, is it? Definitely not. Uh, and we cover many of those sources in that Ragnar episode from last year. Yes. And if you haven't already listened to that episode, go right ahead. It's waiting for you. It's quite good. You think so? Yeah. It's aging like a fine wine. You can tell the, <laughs> the woody tannins, they help to bring out the wit. Ah, very nice. Very modest. (laughs) Um, So, like we said, in that episode, we addressed most of the major events in the life of Ragnar Lothbrok. Mm -hmm. 
or at least what the saga told us were the major events. Yeah, magic cows actually figured quite heavily into the narrative. <laughs> yes, they did, uh, along with dragons, barely concealed phallic jokes, uh, riddles, and what, two heavy metal album cover-worthy deaths. Yeah, that episode was pretty packed. I seem to recall that we set out to do like a 30-minute look at Ragnar's saga, and then it blew up into a pretty lengthy episode, like this one will. Well, that's just standard practice by this point. Yeah. Well, it turned out that season two of Vikings spent quite a lot of time on the origins of the Ragnarsons, Mm -hmm. which we'd spent a lot of time exploring as well. And we love the Ragnarsons, and we can't wait to see what this show does with them in the future. Mm. But we're not talking about the Ragnarsons today. What are we up to today, Tragically, no. We can't just sit around reminiscing about our Ragnar episode. Uh, So what we're planning to do today is to revisit uh, the stories of Ragnar Lothbrok. Oh, I just said that we shouldn't do that, and now you're saying that's exactly (laughs) what we're going to do. Hey. You don't set my agenda. Uh, well, we're not doing it by looking at his saga again. Instead, okay. we're looking at one of the other texts associated with his legend, the poetic Krakumal, or the uh, Lay of the Raven. I knew that, actually. I was just setting you up. Right. Okay. Now, the name Krakumal refers to Ragnar's second wife, Auslog, who's also his second wife on the TV show. She's the, the tall lady with all the children. <laughs> when she was young, she was essentially kidnapped by an ugly old couple who called her Krauka, or Raven, and they kept her dirty and soot-blackened to hide her beauty. Right. Now, as we mentioned in the Ragnar episode, there's a weird amount of Cinderella folklore tied up in the Ragnar tradition. There is. In fact, John, did you know that in uh, Faroese folktale traditions of Cinderella, the ugly sister is often called Krauka daughter or Krauka's daughter? I did not know that. Um, well, now you know that. But did you know that in most versions of Cinderella, her actual name is Ella? Well, she's covered in cinders, of she's course. She's covered in cinders. There you go. Yeah, she's hanging out by the fireplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there's actually a whole lot of stuff out there on Krauka in Scandinavian folk traditions. But we're mm-hmm. going to shift from folk prose narratives now and dig into some pretty good poetry. Pretty mm-hmm. good, anyway. We've dealt with the short verse poems in the sagas before, especially in the warrior poet sagas, but they've always been embedded in prose text so far. Well, as far as the longer poems go, this is a good one to get started on. Uh, Krakomal is more narrowly focused on Ragnar himself rather than on his family, unfortunately. Really? That's a little bit disappointing. I still had a lot to say about Ivar the Boneless and Sigurd and the whole Ragnarsson gang. I love them. Uh, Well, I can offer you this for a consolation prize. Krakomal is supposed to have been composed by Ragnar himself. Oh, that's awesome. If it's true. But it's not true, is it? It's not true, no. No. (laughs) Um, Ragnar lived in the 9th century, if he lived at all. And this poem was probably composed in the 12th century or even later, uh, during the age of saga writing. Right. I mean, we have to be careful about speaking about Ragnar as an actual historical Mm -hmm. person because we don't have a lot of evidence to support that. It's a fairly complicated story that requires some pretty sophisticated research techniques and a whole lot of linguistic ability. Fair enough. If you're... If you're interested in learning a little bit more about Ragnar himself and the literary tradition that grew up around him, why don't you check out Rory McTurk's Studies in Ragnar Saga Lothbrokar and its major Scandinavian analogs. <laughs> now, I picked up a copy through the university library and it's full of great information. So feel hmm. free to give it a go. There's a used copy on Amazon for about $90. I looked into it. Won't be purchased. Oh, well. <laughs> little, little pricey for me right now. Mm-hmm. Um But whatever we think of the historical Ragnar, the information we do have doesn't suggest a guy who spent a lot of time thinking up long poems like this. No, it's true. Um, He's really more the raiding and pillaging sort. Mm -hmm. Uh, But but this is still an impressive poem, and it claims to be a record of the final words of Ragnar as he faced his death in an English snake pit. 
Mm. It's it's also kind of a resume for Ragnar's career as a Viking marauder. Most of the poem's length is just a list of places he's visited and people he's killed during his visits. Okay. You got me back on board. Uh, you mentioned Snake Pit. I'm in. Great. Glad to hear it. <laughs> uh, hopefully anyone listening to this podcast is also up for about 45 minutes of conversation about an obscure medieval poem, Ugh. about the probably fictional autobiographical poem of a semi-legendary person. What are you doing? Way to sell the merchandise here, John. Do you want people to stop listening? No, I was about to suggest that some readers might want to read the text under discussion before digging into our commentary. Oh, sure. We're going to put the poem up on our blog at sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com, and we encourage you to give it a read. The whole thing? Yeah. I bet I have to type that up, don't I? No, I can do that. (laughs) Um, I think you just assigned our listeners homework, didn't you? Okay, well, then why don't you save them some trouble by reading the entire poem right now? Okay, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. They can do the homework. Uh, but, but I can help by offering a few words of wisdom from other people who have read the poem. Hmm. Um, for, for starters, we have, probably have to say that not everyone is a huge fan of Krakomal. And Heinrichs, for example, has said that the poem is not among the foremost examples of skaldic poetry. Oh. Not the highest praise, but I can perhaps see where she's coming from. The poem gets a little bit repetitive. Yeah, we might get to that. Why don't you give us a positive review now? All right, I'm going to try. How about this one? Margaret Schlauch, who published her own translation of the poem way back in 1930, says that Krakomal can be particularly awesome because it expresses the Viking spirit even better than does the saga. Did she actually say particularly awesome? No, no, that was just my lead into the quote. Yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> you 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 make a you make an unconvincing 1930s scholar. Uh, well, she sells it pretty well if her claim holds true. I mean, the saga had people being burned to death on a funeral pyre made of severed heads. Well, yeah, but she's only talking about the end of the poem. For most of the poem, she says the descriptions are monotonous, dude. Being composed of the most conventional expressions about blood and steel, ravens and wolves, swords and helmets, which were the common property of the skaldic poets, man. You all right? Uh, I'm going to ignore your attempts to liven up uh, Schlauch and say, I think it's fair to say that she doesn't read these things for the same reasons we do. Because that description sounds awesome. Oh, see, now you're saying awesome. Mm-hmm. But it really does. At the same time, she's right, though. I mean, like I said, <laughs> the, the narrative gets a little bit repetitive. And for much of the poem's length, it really is just a listing of people Ragnar is supposed to have killed and then fleshing it out with beasts of battle imagery. Well, but that fits. I mean, doesn't it? it Krakomal is supposed to be an avakvitha, a life poem in which the speaker reflects on his life, usually right before it ends. Mm-hmm. Uh, when your life has been as focused on killing people as Ragnar's apparently has been, it stands to reason that there isn't going to be a lot of time spent ref- reminiscing about frolics in the park with his kids. True, but it does make for a one-note poem. Ah, but what a note. <laughs> now, other examples of this sort of poetry appear in the Eddas and in the legendary sagas, and they're usually a little bit more wide-ranging in subject. Hmm. And Ben Wagoner, whose translation we're using for this episode, points out that the tradition of the Avaquida turns up in other Germanic literatures as well. Like uh, Beowulf, for instance. It's funny you mention that. Um, I have to say that reading this poem gave me a kind of shock of recognition. Some, mm-hmm. Something about the first-person narrator and the stylistics of Krakomal really did remind me of some of Beowulf's speeches. Well, you and Ben Wagoner should get a drink sometime. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the upshot is that this poem doesn't get a ton of good press in modern mm-hmm. scholarship. 
And a lot of the reason for that is the poem's translation history, which we'll get to later. But we like it. Yeah, so let's get on to the poem already. Yeah, why don't we get started with a reading? Um, just give us the first verse to get people in the mood. How do we want to read these? Um, is this like a dying man, or is he like... It seems like he should be triumphant. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. I don't think we're going to try to do the impression of a guy who's dying of snake bite the entire time. Because that would just be, yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, I think, yeah, we're doing, like, this is like Charlton Heston, you know, standing on Sinai. Gotcha. Kind okay, of voice. got it. <laughs> we struck with our swords. So long ago it was. We had gone to Goutland for the ground wolf slaughter. Then we won fair Thora. Thus the warriors named me Lothbrok when I laid that heather eel low in battle, ended the earth coil's life with inlaid shining steel. Now, that started out as Charlton Heston and it ended up as a bad Churchill bad Churchill impression, I was going to say. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it did kind of get kind of jowled. We, we were fighting. <laughs> uh, I, can't, I can't do that voice, but you know. Okay, uh, right, whatever. Ignoring the disaster of uh, your chosen voice, that uh, the actual poem doesn't waste any time getting started, does it? Well, it's pretty typical of these poems to just jump right into the action. In this case, we get the entire story of Ragnar winning his first wife by rescuing her from a dragon in a single verse. Pretty good. Now, okay, now it's worth pulling this first verse apart a little bit. Uh, don't worry, folks. We won't do this all the way through the poem. Yeah, please. <laughs> I mean, there are 29 verses of this thing. <laughs> so, right away, there's that first line. Hyogum vermit yorvi. We struck with our swords, or we hewed mm -hmm. with our swords. That line is used throughout the poem to mark the move from one verse to the next, and to add a sort of formal cadence to the overall text. It also provides an illusion of narrative coherence. Uh, most of the poem really, as we've said, is just a list of dead people. And the repetition of that line lends a sense of internal logic to the poem's narrative. And this first verse briefly tells the story of Ragnar killing a dragon, very briefly, which is a bit of a problem if you aren't already familiar with Ragnar's legends. It's it's also a problem if you know the show, since neither of Ragnar's two wives in Vikings are called Thora, and he doesn't rescue either one of them from a dragon. It doesn't seem likely that there'd be a dragon in any case. I mean, the show's writers seem to be avoiding some of the more supernatural elements mm -hmm. of Ragnar's legend. They seem to be aiming for a more pseudo-historical tone, I think. Well, as befits the History Channel. Uh, and I get the impression mm -hmm. that they're a little sensitive about creating points of comparison with Game of Thrones. Possibly. Apart from the seer and the occasional dream vision, they have been avoiding supernatural stuff almost completely. Which, unfortunately for you, means you're not going to get to see Ivar and the Ragnarsons fighting Sibylia the Magic Cow in Sweden. Oh, Sibylia. Getting tossed at that cow is Ivar the Boneless's finest moment. I'm going to hold out hope for that one. Good luck. That's a little bit. Um, so, for those of you who don't know the story, or who don't remember it from our episode last year, Ragnar's two wives in his saga are named Thora Fortressheart, and Aslog Sigurd's daughter. Lagertha, the kick-ass warrior woman who's Ragnar's first wife on the show, is actually from a different text, uh, Saxo Grammaticus's Gesta Denorum. And going back to what we were just saying, it makes sense that the show would replace Thora, since without the dragon-killing story, there really isn't much to say about right. her at all. It does mean, though, that we're short a couple of Ragnar's sons mm. in the Viking show, since so far they haven't added Thora's sons, Eric and Agnar, to the cast. But I don't Right, no, that's will. true. Um, but in this poem, Ragnar references his attack on the dragon as the start of his life of adventure. Yeah. 
Now, the story is that Thora is trapped by a dragon that encircles her home. Her father, who is an earl, offers her hand in marriage to anyone who can rescue her. Ragnar contrives a complicated plan involving tar-soaked and sand-encrusted pants and an oversized spear with a loose spearhead, and he's able to kill the dragon, though not with the same panache as uh, Bjorn, champion of the Hitardal people. Oh, jeez. But, <laughs> but in true folklore fashion, Ragnar is able to prove to everyone that he is the dragon slayer and Thor's rescuer because the loose spearhead remains stuck in the dragon. Right, and Ragnar proves this by revealing the giant shaft of his spear. Hmm. Yeah. In a totally straightforward and not at all phallic way. No, that's the story. And this was long before Freud, so I don't see how it would be phallic at all. (laughs) What? What's the problem? I'm pretending like Freud invented the whole... Yes, get that. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, okay, you made a brief reference to Ragnar's tar-soaked pants. Um, yeah. One of the curious things about this verse, for me, is line six, Thus the warriors named me Lothbrok. Uh, mm-hmm. The name Lothbrok, which has been translated as hairy pants or stiff breeches or dirt pants, <laughs> uh, refers to this whole kicking his pants with tar episode. But mm-hmm. there's no explanation of that in the poem. The poet no. is working on the assumption that his audience will already know and understand the link between Ragnar rescuing Thora and the nickname Harry Pants. Sure. I mean, if we needed evidence that the poem probably dates from well after Ragnar's death, that certainly suggests an author who's counting on a popular awareness of Ragnar's literary legend. Yeah, but it's odd. I mean, they, now that I think about it, they've never really tried to address the nickname on the show either. He's been he's been mm-hmm. called Lothbrok a few times, so it's clearly supposed to be part of his background. But unless I've missed it, no explanation has ever been given as to how he gains the name. That's true. Uh, I, I'm guessing that they just don't care. Uh, well, again, if but I care, damn it. <laughs> well, if they're removing all the, the fantastic elements, you don't really get the name unless you have the dragon fight. So mm-hmm. just dismiss it. Anyway, let's move on, right? Uh, sure. Why don't we go all the way to verse two? All right, let me get my hiking boots on. <laughs> We struck with our swords. Still I was young when we went east to Orisund, carved the eager wolf's meal. We gave a great dinner to the gold-legged birds, where hard iron clashed, howling against helmets tall and well-forged. All the sea was swollen. In slain blood the raven waded. Very dramatic. Well, he sounds a lot older now. <laughs> well, he's been he got older waiting for us to finish talking about the first verse. It's the poison in his in his veins. <laughs> so why take us to Orisund? This seems kind of generic to me. Well, I, that's part of what's interesting about it. It's it's not offering much in terms of plot or narrative in its own right, but it's setting up mm-hmm. the rest of the poem as a bloodbath. You talking about the carrying animals motif? Yeah, yeah. Um, this this verse mentions three animals: ravens, wolves, and golden-legged birds, which is a reference to eagles. Mm-hmm. All three animals are being fed by the carnage that Ragnar and his crew bring to the various locations mentioned in the poem. In this case, to Orisund, which is a strait separating Sweden from Denmark. Now, geographically, this might be of some interest to the fans of the Viking show, because Orsund is immediately to the southeast of Kattegat, which is the bay where Ragnar's kingdom is based. 
So the poem's geographical reference to traveling east to Orsund t- actually ties in nicely with Ragnar's situation on the show. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of those moments when we can see the show's writers are actually doing some research when it comes to the elements of the world they're creating. It's quite nice. Now, so in addition to being geographically savvy, the writers of Vikings have also been seeding in references to these animals as well, especially in the second season. Uh, this tradition of using the eagle, raven, and wolf to indicate a great slaughter that has occurred or to foreshadow a slaughter to come, it's widely used in Germanic literature. Yeah, it's one of those things that are so common that you don't necessarily stop to think about it when you run across it in another text. Yeah, no, the theme is actually, it's pretty hard to miss in the literature, but it actually wasn't until 1955 that uh, a scholar named Francis Magoon formalized the theme of the beasts of battle in an article in Neuphilologische Mitteilungen. Gesundheit. Shut up. Uh, <laughs> Magoon looked at the theme as it appeared in Anglo-Saxon literature. Uh, and it's pretty remarkable to look at his list and realize that a lot of the most well-known texts in Anglo-Saxon are all using this same image. Uh, Magoon identified the beasts of battle, and this is going to be a laundry list of Anglo-Saxon texts. Uh, the Battle of Brunenburg, in Beowulf, in Elena, in Exodus, in the Finsburg Fragment, in Genesis A, Judith, the Battle of Molden, and the Wanderer. Uh, in most of those instances, all three animals are mentioned explicitly in, you know, the space of a couple of lines, uh, although occasionally only two are named. So other scholars have turned up more examples, and of course, it's a very popular motif in Icelandic literature as well. Okay. So Ragnar's poem uses the Beast of Battle multiple times, and everyone else is using it too, so why is this so popular, or why do we care? Well, they're such cool animals. That's uh, true. But, <laughs> uh, but to, I mean, seriously... Of course, as always, there's discussion about it. Uh, For some readers, it's just a conventional image, uh, Mm -hmm. which, incidentally, is pretty much what Magoon had to say about it. Uh, But there are other and much more interesting possibilities. Uh, After all, these three animals all show up extensively in the art and mythology of the Germanic world. Oh, that's right. Even their more generic associations make a good case for their symbolic value. Wolves are all over the place in Mm -hmm. Norse myth. Devouring the sun, ending the world, killing gods, you name it, they're there. And mm-hmm. they're constantly coming up as a harbinger of doom in the literature. Yeah, especially on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite quotes from Kevin Crossley Holland is about this. In Germanic writing, he says, Whoever lost the fight, the wolf was the winner. Mm. Yum, yum. Well, and then we have the raven and the eagle. They're both associated with corpse eating, but they mm-hmm. also have their individual connotations. The raven's a symbol of sacrifice, for example, and I think the eagle is associated with nobility, even though, you know, they eat corpses. Yeah. Uh, well, and there's also the somewhat gruesome fact that these animals are all associated with battlefields for a reason. Oh, sure. Yeah, they're all carrion animals, and they will feed on freshly killed corpses of warriors. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty grim, but yeah. Well, it's just the circle of life, John. Jeez. <laughs> So uh, the idea is that the So I've just got an image now of Elton John crooning away over a battlefield filled with half-eaten corpses. <laughs> That's a nice image. <laughs> so the idea is that these warriors and poets would be familiar with the sight of these animals hanging around after a battle, helping themselves mm. to an all-you-can-eat buffet of dead Vikings. Sure. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's so grim. Uh, yeah, it's the same logic that American writers used when they established – the, the that classic image a vulture hanging over a cowboy in the desert right indicating that death yeah. is near yeah that's true uh, it's tempting to think about these things as being rooted in the kind of real world experience but i get, there are other possibilities mm-hmm. I mean, how about the link with odin i mean odin certainly linked with these same animals he's got two wolves and two ravens that are his companions 
as well as totemic animals. In fact, people who remember the very first episode of Vikings may even remember that Ragnar had a vision of Odin on a battlefield. Mm -hmm. And the clearest indication that it was Odin was the cloud of ravens that surrounded him and rode on his shoulder. And I keep wondering if they're going to come back to that. Yeah, I, I, it's odd that they give us that image right away, and they've kind of just shied away from it ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, Although Ragnar does like to, to wink a lot. Fair enough. Uh, a reference that might not mean anything to most most people. Doesn't uh, mean anything to me either. I don't know why I said it. Well, <laughs> well, we'll get into all the details of Odin's animal friends when we get around to doing an episode on Norse myth. Mm-hmm. Uh but the tricky thing about the Odin link is whether those animals are used symbolically because of their link to Odin or whether they're symbolic of Odin because of their connection to battlefields and the fate of the slain. Oh, this is one of those slaughtered chickens or the gobbled egg questions. <laughs> sure, if that helps you. <laughs> um, but since we should really be talking about Ragnar and his story, let's add that the legends of the Ragnarsons included a war banner which showed a raven with its wings outstretched. Yeah, uh, the banner was supposed to be magical, right? Mm-hmm. It was woven by the women of the Ragnarsson clan in one night, and it foretold the Ragnarsson's victory or defeat in battle. Mm-hmm. I think if the, the raven's wings were lowered, it meant no good for the Ragnarsson's, but if its wings were outstretched, then they would win the day. And presumably this is not information they'd want their enemies to have. <laughs> or their or their followers, for that matter. No, I wouldn't think so. I mean, can you imagine poking your head out of the tent all bleary-eyed on the morning of a battle and seeing that? <laughs> hey, looks like the failure banner's up today, guys. We're screwed. <laughs> well, <laughs> I imagine the banner usually foretold victory for some reason. Uh, yeah, I suspect so. they only had one banner. <laughs> uh, so to sum this up and get back to the poem... Uh, the use of the raven, wolf, and eagle indicates both that Ragnar brings great slaughter to Orisund and that the carnage will continue. Ah, and references to the animals continue as well. The very next verse includes another line about feeding the wolves with corpses of fallen earls. Mm. But I think we should skip ahead a bit. Uh, why don't we look at verse 7 next? Uh, okay. Uh, I think it's your turn to do the honors. We struck with our swords. Swinging blades were howling before King Aesting fell there on the field of Ulur. We went, glittering with gold, off the ground of the falcon. Corpse-like shattered shield boards from ships to helm meeting. Neck ale burst from blade wounds, from brain cliffs it spurted. I feel like I'm doing him an injustice by reading it that way. I I, I would agree, yes. <laughs> um, but I'm assuming you brought this one up because of Aesteen and his magic cow? Oh, well, yes. That's a bonus, <laughs> I guess. Anyway, this version of the story of the war with Sweden's King Aesteen is a lot different from the version that we saw in the saga. Mm-hmm. I mean, for one thing, Aesteen's battle cow, Sibylia, isn't even mentioned, which is just a travesty. I'm sorry. And Ivar is also left out. Mm-hmm. Now, anyone who doesn't know about this magic cow and Ivar's crazy plan for defeating it, you have to go and read Ragnar's saga or at least listen to our episode on it. Okay. Um, the cow is one thing, and you are a man obsessed. But... You've touched <laughs> on another awesome important difference in this poem. Uh, according to our other sources, Ragnar wasn't even present at the battle with Aesteen. Right? right? I mean, Aesteen fights and kills two of Ragnar's sons before the rest of the gang, under the leadership of your favorite, Ivar the Boneless, arrives mm-hmm. and kills him. Ragnar was off somewhere else when all this was happening. 
Yeah. It's definitely a fool's errand to try and make all these legends hang together, though. Mm-hmm. There's a, one theory, though, that might shed some light on the problem that we're talking about here. Well, don't hold back. Share the wisdom. Well, don't get your hopes up too high now. There's one scholar, uh, I think it was uh, Jan de Vries, mm-hmm. the linguist, not the economic scholar, if you're going to go looking this thing up. Uh, he suggested that Ragnar's execution was a piece of propaganda that was invented to justify the invasion of mm. England. And he argues that the timeline of the Ragnar legend actually doesn't include much of Ragnar himself, at least in the early stages of the legend. Really? Yeah. Uh, the focus initially, according to De Vries, mm-hmm. was on the Ragnarsons themselves and their military exploits, especially in Anglo-Saxon England. Oh, okay. Now, Ragnar and the snake pit of King Alla, as the theory goes, was invented to provide the Ragnarsons with motivation for invading England. And if that thor- if, and if that theory is correct, then Ragnar's character and his adventures were later additions to help enhance the bloodline of these famous conquerors. Hmm. So the fact that Ragnar is strangely absent from his own saga isn't all that surprising. Well, if this theory is true. Right, if it's true. But it would explain the heavy folktale flavor of the Ragnar episodes early on in the saga. Hmm. Well, I mean, the best way to make sense of what's happening in Krakomal is probably to understand it as a kind of grab bag of story elements that Mm -hmm. coalesce into various accounts of Ragnar's life. Uh, yeah, we're starting to see more of this on the show, in fact. Um, season two involved a lot of battle set pieces, but it also focused a great deal on Ragnar, consolidating his power base at home, which isn't really something that the sagas look at in much detail. Right. And season three is starting to look uh, like it's going to involve Ragnar moving around more and involving himself in a wider world, which is much more in keeping with the Ragnar that we're seeing in Krakomal. Right, I think so. Um, like the writers of Vikings, each author is drawing from a combination of oral and written stories to create a version of events that plausibly enters into conversation with existing legends. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the same elements may come together in different ways in different story iterations. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is similar to a point we've made about the show before. I mean, it would be easy to sit around and maybe complain about the ways that the show deviates from sources, but I think it's much more interesting to think about this show as the most recent version of Ragnar's legend in the same way that King Arthur's stories or Robin Hood legends are still evolving and taking on new forms. Okay, so we're getting very profound, but that's not really what you read this verse for, is it? No, no, I kind of wanted to talk about Kennings. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, I figured we'd get to that eventually. Um, We've been talking about Kennings occasionally in our summaries of various sagas, but you're right, we've never really dug into how they work. Um, Should those be their own saga brief, though? Maybe, but I expect that it would be disappointingly brief. So let's try to do a quick primer here and then and then maybe revisit the possibility of a devoted saga brief another time. <laughs> Although I should say in uh, Viking language, in the Viking language book, there's mm-hmm. a whole section on Kennings. Nice. And it's, it's pretty well developed. Excellent. Um, so this is something that some people may remember from their high school or maybe college English class. Since Kennings are common to both Icelandic and Old English poetry, which everyone reads in high school English. <laughs> well, in actually, uh, you know, I teach in Massachusetts, and it's uh, Beowulf's part of the high school curriculum here. Oh, Beowulf always is. I don't well, know how they teach there it. There you though. go. Beowulf, I'm not sure if you're aware, is an example of Old English poetry. Yes, it is. Uh, now, a Kenning is a, <laughs> a poetic device, a kind of complex metaphor that takes the place of a noun. Um, and I want to warn everyone, this is about to get kind of uh, Englishy. Right. I mean, <laughs> there's really no way to talk about Kennings without getting a little kind of nebbishy for a minute. Um, okay. So Kennings usually take the form of a conceptual link between an object or person 
and a euphemism for that object or person. Right? So like a metaphor. Uh, and uh-huh. usually the euphemism is pleonastic, which is where the complexity oh comes in. <laughs> pleonastic? Really? Sure. That's what you're doing? Yeah. We are trying to be accessible here at Saga Thing. Oh. And there you are trying to sound like a professor from the 1890s. <laughs> so let's keep it simple. Let's look at an example. In uh, Let's go to the fifth and sixth lines of this verse. Ragnar mm-hmm. says, we went glittering with gold of the ground of the falcon. That's keeping it simple? Well, it's pretty straightforward, I think. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're looking, let's let's kind of piece parse this out. Mm-hmm. When you're looking at a simple kenning, the first thing to do is to look for the basic subject. In this case, the subject is going to be falcon all the way at the end of the sentence. Now, everything else in the metaphor is going to be based on this Mm -hmm. falcon, so it's kind of important. So then we look at the phrase, ground of the falcon, which is a little less obvious for modern readers. But we have to think about what ground the falcon sits on. And if you know anything about the Middle Ages, you know that it... It's likely a reference to falcons being used as hunting birds and returning to what? The falconer's arm. Thank you. <laughs> I thought you said we were trying to keep it simple. Well, if it was too simple, then it wouldn't be fun. I mean, this is how good skaldic poetry works and good kennings work. So stop complaining and tell us what the kenning means here. Well, it means uh, the ground of the falcon means arm. Yeah. I, I mean, I know you're guessing even though I told you the answer, but you're correct. <laughs> Well, I knew all along. Thank you. Keep going. All right. All right. So now the Kenning's last element is gold. So we had gold of the ground of the falcon. Mm -hmm. So we could simplify that now to gold of the arm. Um, Mm -hmm. Gold of the arm is probably an arm ring, which was a favorite jewelry of the Germanic warrior class, often given as a reward for a brave deed. So... The entire kenning in this case is a poetic circumlocution for the worth of the warriors Ragnar's talking about. Got it? Right. Sure. So if we go back to the line, what it says is, we went glittering with arm rings. Exactly. Which suggests highly decorated warriors. Great. Pretty good. Uh, Of course, as you said, that's actually a fairly simple example in that it uses clear imagery and doesn't require any further exposition. Right uh, Now, where the Kennings can get really complicated, especially in Old Norse, is in the Skald's preference for referring to legends and myths as part of the Kenning. And we've seen this a lot in the poet sagas. That oh, we've, absolutely. Uh, been going through. Uh, we've been slogging through these. Uh, so multiple sagas, including Cormac's saga, to, to give one of the examples, uh, use the Kenning, Gerther of the Fire of the Hands. Uh, now, Fire of the Hands is another reference to gold, this time invoking finger rings. But you're not going to get much further unless you know that Gerther is an especially beautiful goddess, the wife of the fertility god Frey. Okay. So we've got beautiful goddess of the gold rings, which mm-hmm. ends up being a fairly generic complimentary kenning for a woman. Right. So, And there, there are entire texts given over to the parsing out of these kennings and listing the artistically acceptable myth elements that can be used in forming your metaphors. Mm-hmm. But let's not go too far down that rabbit hole right now. Yes, please uh, let's not. I, w- <laughs> I want to deal in Kenning's wholesale for a moment. Oh, great. Meaning what, what What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is that part of a scald's bag of tricks is to demonstrate a wide-ranging creativity when it comes to pursuing uh, Kenning's and metaphors. So okay. it's worth looking at the variety of Kenning's our scald uses to get a sense of his ability. Okay, so this is probably going to be more evidence against Ragnar as a poet, but you go ahead with yourself. 
Okay, so Andy and I have come up with our lists of the kennings used in this poem, and we're going to fire them off yes. lightning round style. Uh, oh. So <laughs> I'll give you a topic, and you give me all the kennings in the poem for that thing. Oh, my goodness. Is that what we're doing with these? Yeah. All right. Well, give me an easy one to start with, okay? All right. How about Spears? Spears. Okay. Um, Vidrir's wand, worm of wounds, strife blades, mm. mass of arrows. Um, Very nice. How about you do serpents? Oh, it's a great one for the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, ground wolf. Nice. Scathegoin. I don't know what that is. Heather eel. Perfect. And earth coil. All right. Uh, Goin is supposed to be a proper name for a snake. Okay. Uh, try ships. What, there's a, there's a snake out there whose name is Goin? Goin. Hey, Goin. Hey, Goin. Get my garden. Scathe Goin. Uh, try ships. Ships. Oh, there's lots of ship ones. Uh, they're traveling all over the place. Um, these are a little bit confusing, though. Heflier's horses. Mm. Um, Agier's snowshoes. Anafi's snowshoes, which is a little repetitive, mm-hmm. so we mark against. Um, Agir's donkeys, which is my favorite. Wow. Okay, so every one of those is based on mythic references. This is a lightning round. No time oh, sorry, to discuss. Sorry. Do right. one on uh, on blood. There's lots of blood ones. Oh, yes. Uh, wound splash. Hmm. Wound sweat. Sword sweat. Again, repetitive. Uh, neck ale, which may be my favorite kenning in this entire poem. Yeah. Uh, the brown dew of pale bodies. That one's just gross. Yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> uh, neck ale is my favorite. Uh, arrows. Arrows. That one's easy. Uh, bowstring stakes. String notched palm trees. Now you do warrior. Palm trees? Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> He's in the tropics. Uh, all right, warrior. Um, helm shaker. Mm-hmm. Endil's offspring. Endil. Endil. Helm stump. Mm. Uh, okay, time for the bonus round. Uh, <laughs> sword. Sword. Oh, God. Um, let me delay just one second and say how much I like Helm Stump for Warrior. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, okay, here it goes. Uh, reddened Blades. Mm-hmm. Sword. Bane Herrings. Mm. Corpse Curs. Round Shields Moon. <laughs> Strife Blades. Corpse Light. Uh, bitter Black Wound Ho. <laughs> Scabbard flame, wound serpent, light flickers, metal blades, and scabbard thorns. Wow. Mm. Uh, oh, let's do one more battle. Ugh, yikes. Um, okay. Helm meeting, battle cloud, haven's wife, storm, rain of shields, shields game, gust of swords, brawl of spear points. That's pretty obvious. Yeah, well, Spear Din, Contest of Blades, Blizzard of Spear Points, if you don't like Brawl, Edge Games, Din of Swords, Wrath of Healed, and Lance Meat. Lance Meat. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, can I get a pound of your Lance Meat? (laughs) Only your finest Lance Meat. Uh, But that's uh, Lance M-E-E-T, not M-E-A-T, so... It's just a little joke. Uh, the, so these are the most Very common little. examples in the poem. Um, there are also four names for Odin in the poem, several names for armor, shields, and so on. It's basically a list of 
interesting kennings. Right. No, and, and I have to add one of my favorites, uh, just because it's so evocative of the world from an Icelandic perspective. The ocean described as the puffins field. Mm. Well, we, we should probably add that Krakomal isn't really known for the high level of mm-hmm. poetic creativity. Uh, Schalk's evaluation of it as a monotonous and conventional poem is probably pretty close to the general opinion. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's stop short of turning this into a brief on Kennings. Uh, what else do we have to talk about here? Well, okay. It'd be fun to dig through the entire poem and look at all of Ragnar's adventures, but we're really hoping to keep this under an hour. Uh, honestly, folks, read yeah. the whole thing if you can possibly find the time. Uh, right now, let's jump all the way to verse 25. Okay. It's your turn. All right. <clears throat> We struck with our swords. My soul is glad, for I know that Baldur's father's benches for a banquet are made ready. We'll toss back toasts of ale from bent trees at the skulls. No warrior bewails his death in the wondrous house of Fjolnir. Not one word of weakness will I speak in Vithria's hall. I thought we weren't going to make him sound like he was dying. That was dying? It sounded like he was dying to me. Like, well, I can't make him sound like he's Churchill. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's got a few obscure bits in it. For one thing, there are three different names for Odin in that single verse. No, no, no. What I want to talk about is the middle of the verse. We'll toss back toasts of ale from bent trees of the skulls. That sounds good to me. I mean, my glass is nearly empty over here. Not the point I'm trying to make. Uh, this is a famous line. Uh, it's actually a famous line chiefly for what it isn't about. Oh, okay. I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah. Um, this is the story of the infamous Ule Verm and his skull goblets. Oh, everyone knows about Ule Verm and his skull goblets. Well, I'll, I'm going to explain it. So the oh, short please. version of the story starts in about 1636. Oh, it's, it's like it was yesterday. <laughs> This is going to be the short version? Yeah. When does the long version start? In 787? So, <laughs> so, in about 1636, a Danish doctor named Ulle Verm completed a set of translations of texts from various Scandinavian dialects. He translated the text into Latin, which made sense at the time. Uh, but what made less sense was Verm's somewhat casual approach to translation. Uh, he made a number of significant mistakes. Uh, for one example, at three points in the poem, he translated the Old Norse word for it is not as it is. That's a simple mistake. Sure. But the result is that. that in Verm's version of Krakomal, Ragnar consistently says that killing his enemies feels like making love to a beautiful woman. Uh, well, you know. But that is not what he's saying. He's explicitly saying it is not like that. I could create a an argument for how that oh, would work. Oh, no. But no, I would no, need no. Freud. I thought we said we weren't doing Freudian analysis here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> at one point, uh, Verm seems to think that Ragnar doesn't know the difference between splitting men's heads open and hitting on lonely widows in the mead hall. It's very similar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. I don't know whether that would say more about Ragnar's approach to battle or to foreplay. But either way, it's disturbing. <laughs> well, I mean, it would be, but of course it's not what the poet is saying at all. No, he's creating a sustained juxtaposition of the pleasures of life in the hall with the hardships of the Viking lifestyle. Right. I mean, the problem is that Verm's translation turned out to be fairly popular. Mm. Uh, and also, as the first of its kind, it had a tremendous influence on the poem's future. 
Several other versions of the poem were produced in the next decades, but some of Verm's mistranslations would remain in new versions of Krakomal all the way through the 19th century. Okay, but you were promising a short version, and you were going to talk about verse 25. All right, all right, sure. Uh, So this is another of Verm's moments of anti-genius. The poem talks about drinking from the bent trees of the skull. Uh, Now that we've mastered the art of the kenning, this shouldn't be too hard to sort out. No, not at all. So look for your base subject first, in this case, skull. Right. And we need something that is to the skull what a bent tree is to the earth. So maybe we're talking about horns. Uh So this is, uh, okay, this is a reference to drinking horns. Absolutely. Have a drink. You've earned it. Drinking. Uh, Which reminds me, we're still working on a saga brief about drinking culture in the sagas. Promises, promises. Now, I, I, I want you to know I'm counting this as our Skaldic Poetry Brief, by the way. Oh, are you? Yeah, absolutely. Right. <laughs> At least for the time being. But let's keep going. Uh, so, Verm didn't read that line as drinking horns, did he? No. Um, so, he was trying to translate the kenning, not to explain it. Okay. Into Latin. Which, let's fair enough. Fair. Right. So, fair difficult. enough. Uh, but he somehow read the line as, We shall drink beer out of the skulls of our enemies. Nice. Which is undeniably badass, but it's just completely divorced from reality. Well, I've always wondered how that was supposed to work anyway. And there are a lot of holes in the skull, if you think about it. <laughs> um, how would you keep the beer in? Maybe you shotgun it through its ear hole or something. Uh, well, the, the image was sensational, um, obviously. And, of course, it proved to be what most people remembered from the poem. Now, there's never been the slightest shred of evidence that any Scandinavian made cups out of the skulls of their enemies, and scholars have been shouting for centuries that the whole thing is a big mistake. But, as Tom Shippey recently wrote, it's too late, the image has become ineradicable. For centuries? Yeah, no, actually, yeah, for centuries. Uh, There's a short article from 1852 by Cowgill, uh, which already points out that several other people have already argued that skull cups weren't a thing. And yet, they're right up there with horn helmets. I yep. mean, we think about, I mean, Vikings and skull cups. Yep. Uh, but Thanks, we really sh- we should give Ulliverum some credit. Uh, he yeah. may have been a terrible translator, but we should recognize his contributions to science, which was actually his primary field. Uh, for okay. one thing, he first recognized the intrasutural bones of the cranium, which we now call Vermian bones. Okay. Uh, he also proved in a 1638 paper that unicorns don't exist. Are you serious? Did that even need proving? <laughs> well, apparently, yes. Uh, there was a brisk trade in unicorn horn in the medieval and renaissance periods. Uh, Verm did a study of the horns and determined that they were actually narwhal tusks. Oh, my goodness. So he had a kind of obsession with horns and skulls, and yet he still managed to totally misunderstand the reference <laughs> to drinking horns. Yeah. <laughs> well, that may be the most ridiculous thing that's come up on the podcast so far. I, I was pleased with it. Uh <laughs> Uh, I mean, it just goes to show what happens when you start researching something. Absolutely. These little, Absolutely. These little I was delighted. That you can go down. I was delighted two hours into reading about Liverm for this podcast to discover that he disproved unicorns. This is why papers don't get written. That's exactly right. <laughs> uh, All right. So uh, what else we got to cover? Well, before we get to the final stanza of the poem, which is pretty great, I just want to point out something <laughs> the poem brings up that might seem a little bit confusing to fans of the show Vikings. Uh, okay. Well, well, since we're already at the right section of the poem, we can just look at the next verse, which says that Ragnar's sons will take revenge for his death. Mm-hmm. 
the sons of Oslog all would rouse the wrath of Hildir with their ruthless sword blades, if they fathomed fully how far I have traveled, how so many serpents stab me with their poison. My sons' hearts will help them. They have their mother's lineage. I knew you were going to find a way to fit the Ragnarsons into this well, somehow. I make no apologies for this. Now, we already <laughs> talked about the personality switch on the show. Lagertha, Ragnar's mm-hmm. first wife, is much closer to the personality of the Auslog from the sagas, which makes sense since Auslog is supposed to be a warrior and the daughter of the famous dragon slayer Sigurd Fafnirsbein. So Ragnar's claim in the poem that Auslog's sons have the superior blood of their mother's family is not an empty claim. Okay, I see. So even though the Aslog on the show is more ornamental and not much of a fighter. Ooh. Um, but, well, but she still does claim to be the daughter of Sigurth and Bruno. Yes, she does. It's kind of an injustice, though. I mean, entire sagas are mm-hmm. written about Aslog's parents and how epic they were. So, uh, anyway, the, the poet refers to the sons of Auslog, which, depending on which version of Ragnar's life we're looking at, is somewhere around five boys... In the show, there are four so far. I think there's Ube, Hvitserk, uh, Sigurd Snake mm-hmm. in the Eye, and Ivar the Boneless. Uh, that's in addition to Ragnar and Lagertha's son, Björn Ironside, uh, and their deceased daughter, Gyrtha, who, you know, who cares? Well, oh. <laughs> Sorry, Gyrtha. Wow. <laughs> uh, but apart from Björn, the show really hasn't done much with them so far. Uh, their, their chief role seems to have been to justify Ragnar's decision to take up with mm-hmm. Aslaug who, I have to say, is providing sons with tremendous regularity. Right, but that decision came at the cost of his marriage to Lagertha and his relationship with his first son. So the only exception so far is the season two episode when Ragnar wrestles with the decision of whether to kill Ivar by exposing him to the elements as an infant. Now, for those who haven't heard it, we discussed the practice of child exposure in our episode on the saga of Gunlaug's serpent tongue. Each of the sons has their own stories in the sagas, and it will be interesting to see whether the show eventually does another time jump to get to the point where we can see the Ragnarsons tearing up the northern world as a clan. I really hope they do. I do too. But as we mentioned before, the family links in the literature might be a little confusing to anyone who's primarily familiar with the show. In Ragnar's saga, for example, Björn is one of the sons of Auslog, Ube doesn't appear at all, and there's a fifth son named Rongvald who dies in battle as a teenager. So lots of guys. Right. And then there's uh, Eric and Agnar, the two other sons from Ragnar's first marriage to Mm -hmm. Thora. Uh, In fact, like Björn on the show, those two have a kind of contentious relationship with Ragnar and some of the sources. And they even betray him in one version. Yeah, of I wonder story. if they're going to play with that in in terms of the way Bjorn's relationship is developing. But uh, be interesting. The to see. important point here is that no two of the sources totally agree on the number, name, or mm-hmm. parentage of all of Ragnar's sons. So uh, this is another example of how the show Vikings is actually just taking part in a long tradition of mixing and matching pieces of the Ragnar story. And the poems call for the Ragnarsons to take revenge for their father's death. And that reflects two different moments in Ragnar's saga. Well, there's the epic fight between the Ragnarsons and King Aistin of Sweden after Aistin killed their half-brothers. This is when Auslog actually travels with her sons and acts as commander of the ground forces during the battle. And, like I said earlier, there's also this theory that Ragnar's death in the snake pit of King Alla of England uh, provides a legendary excuse for the great heathen army's invasion of Anglo-Saxon England in the 860s. Well, okay, now you say legendary, but... 
let's just be clear. We know that that invasion actually happened and nearly wiped out the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Sure, but the reasons for the invasion are a little harder to pin down and may well have just been a bid for more land and for the expansion of the Norse world as anything. Okay, uh, but let's stick to the poem sure. for now. Uh, it's it's strange that the Krakumal Ragnar has a more impressive resume than the saga mm-hmm. version. Uh, in that way, the television show is actually closer to Krakumal than some of the other narratives. In both cases, Ragnar comes across as a central figure in Scandinavian geopolitics. That's true. Well, whereas he may have been little more than a, a bit of Viking PR, historically speaking, at least if Jan de Vries' mm. theory is correct. Yeah, maybe. No, I tend to think there's a blending of history and legend in the Ragnar narratives, which is not to say that Ragnar never existed, uh, but he does seem to represent something or someone at a particular moment, almost like uh, King Arthur does for the Britons in the face of the Anglo-Saxon invasion. Or migration, mm. depending on how you look at it. But that's a whole mm. other ball of wax. I don't want to get into that. So uh, what right. do you say we move on to the final verse of the poem? Oh, well, all right. Uh, well, here goes. I desire my death now. The Dysir call me home, whom Herjan hastens onward from his hall to take me. On the high bench, boldly, beer I'll drink with the gods. Hope of life is lost now. Laughing, I shall die. This is actually one of my favorite verses in the poem. It's great for a lot of reasons. It's true. Uh, it's a tightly organized verse with a jarring opening line. It's it's the only verse in the poem that doesn't use that we struck with our swords well, opening. Well, it's the end, right? Uh, so that I desire my death now adds an unexpected note of satisfied quiescence. After a lifetime of war, Ragnar is resigned to a hero's death. Except that it's not an especially heroic way to go. I mean... Well, no, that's true. I was trying to make, give it gravitas. Oh, well, good job. I, I think the poet is as well. <laughs> He he is being snake-bitten to death, and yet he does maintain yeah. his composure well enough to compose this poem. So, <laughs> I mean, so forgive him, Miss Schlauch, if he's a little repetitive while his veins are coursing with poison. Okay, <laughs> but in the previous verses, the, the poet uses serpent imagery to try to balance this death with Ragnar's dragon-slaying mm-hmm. adventure in the first verse. Yeah, that's interesting. Right? Whether or not we think... Allah's snake pit is a shameful death for Ragnar. His death song spins it as a fitting death for his chaotic life. So according to that way of reading the poem, this final verse only needs mm-hmm. to make the claim that Odin himself or Herjan is reaching out to collect Ragnar and bring him to Valhalla. Pretty much. Well, there's no doubt that this last verse has a long list of post-medieval admirers. I think you can... Right, absolutely. Um, now, we've mentioned Uliverb's notorious edition of Krakomal in 1636... But we didn't fully talk about how popular the poem became. Uh, by the 18th century, Ragnar Lothbrok was one of the most famous figures from Old Norse literature in the English-speaking mm. world. Uh, a 1700 essay on the subject of heroic virtue, which is its okay. title, uh, cited Krakumal as one of the finest examples of the heroic quest for noble death. And other writers, directly or indirectly, used Ragnar as the model for the terrifying Viking hero. Wow. You really dug deep on this one, didn't you? Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> People who don't spend a lot of time reading older literature might not know that these fads in popularity are actually pretty common. 
Um, I mean, mm-hmm. even the, the you could say that the the rise of of Ragnar in uh, Icelandic or Scandinavian tradition in the 12th century is the result of this uh, reawakening mm. of uh, the Viking tradition or an interest in the Viking tradition, which had kind of faded by that time. Um, True. It's yeah. It would be a mistake to think that fads in literature only happened long after the periods of the primary literature, right? The primary literature itself reflects those right, fads. Right, yeah, we wouldn't have this poem if a fad didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, certain authors and texts do rise and fall in importance according to the taste of the day. And again, this poem is a reflection of that. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, by the late 18th century, interest in Germanic and British legendary history, uh, it meant that figures like Ragnar were almost rehabilitated. Almost. Almost. Okay. Uh, there was still a kind of horrified fascination with the violence of well, the legends. Why shouldn't there be? Uh, that's some of what we love about it. I think that's part of why we are enjoying sure. Vikings now. Right, and absolutely. Um, but that fascination fed into an increasing emphasis on the full-blooded way the heroes of the past had lived. And there was less focus maybe on how much suffering and fear they'd caused. Mm. Uh, writers who wrote about Ragnar and others of his age tended to emphasize bravery and an emotion-based worldview. Mm. Uh, even the famous stoicism of Saga Age writing, which you know is one of the things that you and I love mm-hmm. about it, tended to be reread as a manly control over surging nice. emotions. You know, a Ben Wagoner's edition of Ragnar's materials points out a few great examples of this kind of reimagining of Ragnar, uh, especially the Ragnar of the Kraukumal. Wagoner includes examples of uh, Matthew Arnold, uh, John Dryden, and Thomas mm. Percy becoming fascinated with Ragnar's character. But I, I like mm-hmm. uh, Robert Southey's early 19th century poem, The Race of Odin, as an example of how writers were reimagining Ragnar's story two centuries ago. Dark was the dungeon, damp the ground, beneath the reach of cheering day, where Ragnar dying lay. Poisonous adders all around, on the expiring warrior hung, Yet the full stream of verse flowed from his dauntless tongue. We fought with swords, the warrior cried. We fought with swords, he said. He died. Wow. It, it's, it's remarkable to hear that kind of tone in a Ragnar yeah. story. Uh, although it does match up nicely with the style of most 19th century translations of the sagas. Yeah, it's jarring to hear that kind of sentiment and that unmistakably romantic cadence being used to retell Ragnar's death. And yet Mm. the repeated line Ragnar speaks in Southey's poem is the same repeated line that begins all but the last verse in Kraukamal. And ultimately, Mm -hmm. for fans of Ragnar's story from that era, the death of Ragnar was an example of the romantic worldview. And elements of the poem and of Ragnar's legends spoke to them and corresponded to elements of the art of their own time. Right. I mean, it may seem a little bizarre from our perspective to read Ragnar's story mm-hmm. that way, but I think that's the point. We think we understand the sagas, right? but many of our modern translations interpret them as anti-heroic and sometimes almost nihilistic, yeah. which is more or less what we look for in our own most popular stories. Right? And I think you can watch for a real upsurge in popularity of the sagas um, as we kind of get into this sort of post-heroic mm-hmm. age. And people are going to be looking for literature in which the heroes are not necessarily heroic in the traditional sense. Yeah, sagas are great source for that. Uh, Yeah, Uh, uh, Margaret Clunies Ross recently wrote that that most—this is a quote: 
Uh, most received scholarship about Old Norse skaldic poetry is based on unexamined mm. assumptions. Uh, and I'd argue we can extend that point to include translations and editions. Uh, but I would say we can also extend it to include our experiences as readers of the texts, no matter what language you encounter them in. Yeah. Now, this brings us back to our earlier point. The show Vikings draws on literary tradition in order to create a version of legend that speaks to a present-day audience, while also being shaped by that modern perspective. Not unlike a pair of podcasters who use modern technology to sit around talking about Icelandic sagas from a reader's perspective. Wow. Well, all right. So that's pretty much what we think about Crocomol. We ended on a fairly uh, uh, literature class philosophical note there. Um <laughs> <laughs> but feel free to contact us and let us know what uh, what you think about this poem, uh, what you think about the Vikings show, and about sagas in general. We love to hear from our audience. Yes, and there'll be a quiz on Friday. <laughs> uh, you can get in touch with us uh, at our website, uh, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. Or you can contact us directly through our email, sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. And we're also on Facebook, Saga Thing Podcast, and Twitter, Saga Thing Pod. There's so many places for you to get in touch with us. Far too many. Why don't you drop us a line? (laughs) (laughs) As always, if you'd be so kind as to uh, write a review and rate us on iTunes, that helps to spread the word and help other people find our podcast. Uh, We'd very much appreciate that. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Next time we'll be uh, back with a look at Vigeland Saga, which is uh, suddenly one of my favorites of the poet sagas. I think whichever saga you've read most recently is your favorite. Uh, That's not always true. Check the scores. Well, right. Fair enough. All right. Well, until next time, uh, thanks very much for listening and bye for now. Yep. Krakumal is more narrowly focused on Ragnar himself rather than his family. Mm-hmm. Really? That I'm sorry. I was I was drinking. <laughs> I missed that. I was drinking. Mm -hmm. Mm. Glug, glug, glug.